I suspect you've read this several times. I, I have known of some Christian leaders in history who read this every morning. We'll start at verse, verse 10. We'll start at verse 10. Again, it's probably familiar, but you've probably not read it in context. Because usually, you know, when you read the Bible, you're reading it as if it was written to you, which is, which is good. It is good. Uh, but sometimes you also need to pause and think to whom it was originally written and maybe why it was written to them. And that can give you some extra insight into the text. So I want you to look at this text that you probably know real well. And let this describe for you the city of Ephesus. So it is Ephesians 6.10. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Now you recognize the text, right? Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So hopefully you do hear what the Spirit's saying to you in this text, but... Just think for a moment about to whom Paul is writing this originally. Uh, obviously, he's writing this to some people who need to put on the full armor of God. Obviously, he's writing this to people uh, that are surrounded by the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Therefore, therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the, given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So again, the people who originally received this evidently knew well about the flaming darts of the evil one. Take, on the, take, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Uh, that's far enough. Um, and you can spend a week on that text. But just for a moment... Try to imagine the group of people, the community to which Paul originally wrote that. Uh, it's Ephesus. It's Ephesus. Ephesus was well, well known for, for the occult. It was well known for um, people dabbling in magic. Um, I, I, encourage you to do, I encourage you to do something for Nick because we're going to talk about this person next week. Uh, sometime this week, Google, Google, I don't, you don't necessarily need to tell people I've told you to Google this, but this is what I want you to Google. Artemis, you're going to be introduced to Artemis next week. A-R-T-E-M-I-S, Artemis. Um, that's the Greek version of Diana. You're going to be introduced to her that goddess next week. But what I want you to Google is Artemis, the many-breasted goddess. Because I want you to see the statue that, that, that was prevalent in the city of Ephesus. 
Again, the city of Ephesus, very pagan, very intelligent. It was a commercial center. It was the capital of Asia Minor. It was a large population, well known for the occult, well known for the dark magic. Um, that's why Paul wrote, put on the full armor of God to those people. You know, and, and it was different from Corinth. It's a lot like Corinth, but Corinth had a lot of paganism and loose living and immorality. Ephesus had that, but Ephesus also had this added layer of um, uh, an addiction or, or an obsession with the occult. Um, another piece of homework, maybe. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, beginning around verse 9, you'll see where the Hebrew Bible lists for us the things to avoid. Necromancy, you know, communicating with the dead. Um, astrology, divination, uh, all of that sort of stuff, what we sort of term the occult. Uh, so that's in the law of Moses. Stay away from that. Um, the, the people that were entering the land of promise are told to stay away from that because all their new neighbors in the land of promise, all the Canaanites dabbled in that stuff, even including the physical sacrifice of their children uh, to, to pagan gods. So particularly coming from Judaism, um, there is a, um, there's an aversion, a horror, a disgust of the occult. You know, they, they would never be able to say something like, well, you know, the Ouija board is just entertainment. They, that's, that's not in the custom. That's not in the tradition. Um, you know, it's like when I lived in Shelby, and it may still be true. The main drag through Shelby, uh, which is 74, which is called Dixon Boulevard, uh, the whole seven years I was there, um, and this is Shelby, North Carolina. I mean, that's just a step away from Mayberry. Um, and with the whole seven years I was there, uh, that major route through Shelby had been adopted, you know, clean the street type thing. It had been adopted by the Wiccans of the community. Um, yeah, I, I, I would see that sign differently maybe than some other people at Shelby saw that sign. You know, some people saw it and said, oh, that's a weird group. I would go beyond weird. Uh, the Bible has strong convictions about the occult, has strong convictions about dark magic. Anyway, so with that background, now that you know something about Ephesus, uh, we're going to get to travel there. It, and by the way, I think I mentioned recently somewhere, today, Ephesus, the ruins of Ephesus, there on the western coast of what we call Turkey, uh, is the largest outdoor museum in the world. It is an amazing excavation site. Um, you walk around um, Ephesus, the ruins of Ephesus. There's no modern city of Ephesus. You walk around the ruins of Ephesus, kind of like walking around the ruins of Corinth. Uh, you almost think you're going to see the Apostle Paul coming in the other direction. So it's well worth a visit to Ephesus. But it was a major, major city um, in Paul's day. And again, notice what Paul's doing. He's hanging out in these major cities. He would rather have gone to Mayberry. But he's hanging out in these major cities because of all the people he encounters. You know, he encounters people who will take the gospel of Christ around the world. He can stay put. And he stays put the longest in Ephesus, that he stays in any city. 
Uh, Corinth is a close second, but Ephesus, uh, he stays there perhaps as long as three years. So there's your introduction to Ephesus. Now, chapter 19. Uh, pay attention for the occult and the black magic. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, we talked about Apollos, uh, one of my heroes last week, um, he, he has gone to Corinth. Uh, he met um, Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, remember, and Priscilla and Aquila had to help him complete his faith. He knew only about the, um, the he, knew, he, knew, he knew about John the Baptist, he knew up to that point. And it took Priscilla and Aquila to move him beyond um, just believing in God and knowing that repentance was important and knowing that one was to come who was going to be the Messiah. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila had to say to Apollos, um, that one has come. And let me tell you what that one has done. And that's why we, could t that's why we talked about last week, and, I, and it's worth mentioning again because our culture needs to hear this. Our church culture needs to hear this. It is not enough to believe in God. You know, that's that's the only thing that will do for you if you believe in God. Uh, you you will know something about the one from whom you'll be separated eternally. If that's all you do is I believe in God, um, that's not enough. That's that's core New Testament. You have to be, move beyond that to believing in God as expressed, as incarnated, as represented in Jesus Christ. So Apollos had to have something added to his belief in God. Apollos, in a sense, what you saw last week, because you're getting ready to see it again, uh, what Apollos was was sort of an Old Testament believer. What he knew was right, just incomplete, and not, not sufficient. Again, for the people who say, oh, I believe in God, well, that's right. Not, not sufficient. Not sufficient. You, you get no brownie points for that one. I can look at the trees and the rivers and believe in God. You know, you've got to move beyond that. That's the whole point of the Christian faith. If, if just believing in God was enough, we'd have stayed Jewish. But we have to add this stuff about Jesus onto it. So evidently, Apollos had had some effect in Ephesus, preaching kind of the Old Testament faith up through John the Baptist. And, you know, we look at John the Baptist a lot during Advent. He is the forerunner, the precursor of uh, the Messiah, Jesus. Um, Jesus makes it very clear. He, he, he belongs to the Old Testament, though, not to the New Testament. He, um, you know, Jesus, um, in Matthew 11, you don't need to turn there, but I'll just read it for you. In Matthew 11, Jesus says something really interesting about John the Baptist. Uh, in Matthew 11, he says, um, Truly I say to you, among those born of woman, which is basically all humans, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So if everyone ever, Jesus is speaking at the beginning of his ministry, and he says, if everyone ever been born of women, no one's greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, John the Baptist. So uh, John the Baptist is sort of Old Testament character, forerunner of Jesus. Now that Jesus has come, you've got to add that to your belief in God. Um, so, but evidently that was Apollos. We looked at him last week. Apollos had been preaching. He was eloquent, remember? He had been preaching in Ephesus. So there's some more disciples of John the Baptist. 
in Ephesus. So now go on. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, he had left Ephesus to go to Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, Asia Minor, we call it Turkey, and came to Ephesus there on the west coast. There he found some disciples, not disciples of Jesus. Now again, it's important to read. Uh, you see the word disciples, think, oh, disciples of Jesus. Well, a lot of people have disciples. The Beatles had disciples. I mean, a lot of people have disciples. Just because you see the word disciple there, that doesn't mean of Jesus. Um, these are disciples of John the Baptist. Uh, by the way, there are still 100,000, according to Wikipedia, which of course is true. Um, there, there's, and I say that because this, this group is a hard group to count. There are still 100,000 Mandeans in the world. Now, I doubt you've ever met a Mandean. You probably don't know what a Mandean is, so I'm going to tell you what a Mandean is. A disciple of John the Baptist. Because he created disciples, and he created a movement. They're scattered around the world. Uh, there's about a thousand of them in the United States. Uh, Iraq and Iran was where the largest number of Mandean, Mandeans have historically lived. Um, so disciples of John the Baptist is not, not a stretch to imagine that. And that's what we're seeing here. These are disciples of John the Baptist. They, they, they went out in the desert. They were baptized in the Jordan. They loved what John the Baptist was preaching. They loved all that bit about repentance. They loved that, you know, John the Baptist saying there's someone's going to come, you know, someone greater than I, John the Baptist said. So they, you know, that's good stuff. And they got excited about that, and they sort of created, you know, the first church of John the Baptist. And it spread around the world, and they're still disciples of John the Baptist. And again, if you believe in God, even if you've added John the Baptist to that belief, it's not sufficient. It's not sufficient. This text is going to show you that. Anyway, so now here Paul, and again, these disciples of John the Baptist in Ephesus, probably who created them? Apollos. So we got disciples of John the Baptist here in Ephesus. So watch what happens. Um, and he, Paul, said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we, had, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. By the way, there's some folks in churches that could say the same thing. They said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, the reason I say there's some people in churches that could say the same thing is this. <sighs> what that really means. Because they obviously, these were people who knew the Old Testament. You can't read the Old Testament without noticing all the references to the Spirit of God. So they're not saying, you know, they, they've never actually heard of the Spirit. They haven't, they haven't received. They haven't experienced. They don't know He's available. So that's what these disciples of John the Baptist are saying. They, you know, that's why Paul says, you know, did you receive? Have you received? Are you in a relationship with the Holy Spirit that you received, that you would have received when you came to faith in Christ? Which again, that's no reason why we know these disciples here are not disciples of Christ because they don't know the Holy Spirit. We, when we come to faith in Christ, we receive the Spirit. We couldn't have come to faith in Christ without the Spirit uh, get, being given some some latitude, some reign in our lives. We don't come to Christ because we all of a sudden become brilliant people. It's the Holy Spirit is pulling us to Christ. When we let the Holy Spirit pull us to Christ, 
is the work of the Holy Spirit at that point to um, birth us in Christ. It's the Holy Spirit work at that point that will engraft us into the people of Jesus, the church. So receiving Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit, um, that's a package. That's a package. So if these people have no relationship with the Holy Spirit, no knowledge of the Holy Spirit, they don't know the work of the Holy Spirit, they've not made it to Jesus yet. They, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. So the Holy Spirit and Jesus come as a package deal. And, it, and, and when, 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 when you are born of the Spirit, that's when you become Christian. Um, the Bible never commands you to be baptized in the Spirit. The Bible does command you to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, so when you come to faith in Christ, that's the Spirit giving you new birth and grafting you into the body of Christ. Uh, when we try to live filled with the Spirit, that's when we are trying to receive the power. The power for witnessing, the power to be bold for Christ. Uh, you've heard me say it several times, or at least on Sunday mornings. As a Christian, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. But then what becomes the, the important question? Does the Holy Spirit have you? Um, so when the Bible pushes you to be filled with the Spirit, he's saying, you know, let the Spirit rule, let the Spirit reign, let the Spirit have his way. Um, so you can be Christian, and you can't be Christian without the Holy Spirit, but you can be Christian and you just kind of keep the Holy Spirit um, locked up in your religious department of your life. And you don't let the Spirit have any more impact on your life. So anyway, here are some disciples of John. So they haven't received Jesus, therefore they don't even know anything about the Holy Spirit. Uh, and they're saying that, so keep, keep on, verse 3. And he said, into what then were you baptized? Because again, it's the Spirit who baptized you into Christ. Into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. These are disciples of John the Baptist, just like Apollos was last week. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance... Repentance is really good. I say turning away from sin, turning toward God. You have to do that. That's the negative side, but you can't stop at repentance. A rep repentance is turning away from sin. Faith is turning toward Christ. So you got to do both. You have to repent. You have to, you have to be sorry for your sin and, and, and turn away from your sin, turn away from your old life, but then you have to turn toward Christ. You have to uh, exercise faith in Christ. Um, so these people have only been baptized into John's baptism, baptism of repentance. Um, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. John the Baptist said he was coming. These people needed to learn he has come. By the way, that's sort of the distinction between us and the Jewish community. They still say he's coming. We're the ones who say Messiah has come. Anyway, keep reading. Verse 6. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, that's a classic Christian expression, ritual, rite um, of prayer. Every Wednesday night in our Vesper service, when our Stephen ministers anoint with oil, they lay hands on the people for whom they're praying, and they anoint with oil. It comes, that's a Bible practice. It's a Bible practice. When Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So again, that's just a repeat of Pentecost. So we've seen this in Pentecost. We've seen this um, in um, Cornelius' house. 
And now we're seeing it here. So, um, you know, you don't have to be Jewish to experience Pentecost. These Gentiles are experiencing Pentecost. They're speaking in um, languages, as you read in Acts 2. They're speaking in unlearned languages. And they're prophesying, which means preaching, which means proclaiming the mind of God, offering a message from God. So you see, the, you know, as soon as, as soon as they... As soon as they come to Christ, they receive the Spirit, and they're giving the Spirit free reign in their life, and uh, speaking in tongues, prophesying the Spirit's doing things in their life. Verse 7, uh, then there were about about 12 men in all. Um, about, notice the word about's there. 12 is also there because 12 is an important number. You know, it might be 20, there might be 17, but, but what's important is this is the 12, because what are these 12 going to do? It's about 12 number going to do. They're going to be the core of the church in Ephesus. The, the church is the new Israel. That's why 12 tribes out of 12 sons and 12 disciples. 12 is an important number in the Bible. But this is going to be the core of the Christian community there. Okay, keep reading. Keep reading. Uh, and he entered the synagogue. Again, Paul's practice, everywhere he went, he started in the synagogue. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly. Uh, that's a pretty good time period. He didn't usually get that much time in the synagogues when he went. For three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the rule of God. And of course, core Christian theology is that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God. You know, if you go back to the Gospels, for instance, Gospel of Mark, and look at first words out of Jesus' mouth. He says, repent and... He doesn't say repent and be nice people. He doesn't say repent and walk down the aisle and give your hand to the preacher and receive Christ. He doesn't say uh, repent and write a book on theology. He says repent and do what? Believe in the kingdom of God. I mean, the whole point of Jesus, he has inaugurated the kingdom of God here on earth. He, he is the inbreaking of the kingdom. He is how God is going to be king of this world in a new way. He starts out by being king in our hearts, and he's going to work uh, through the Holy Spirit and the gospel and his people until he's king of all the universe one day. And uh, then you can paint a picture of what the kingdom of God looks like. Of course, the kingdom of God is where sins cleanse, where people are healed, where life is made whole. But what the, 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 the glory of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God is breaking into human history. In Jesus, the Holy Spirit, through the church, is taking back occupied territory, as we were told by Mr. Lewis. He's taken back occupied territory. So what, we, what we're watching in the world is the extension of the kingdom kingdom of God, kingdom of Christ, that was inaugurated uh, by Christ. So that's core Christian theology, what God is doing around the world. So you, you've got to know about the kingdom of God. Uh, that, that's core doctrine in the New Testament. So that, that's why here he went in, he spent three months, he spoke boldly, persuading them about the kingdom of God. Because again, it's Jesus who brings the kingdom. You need to know who Jesus is. You need to know what Jesus is doing, bringing the kingdom of God. A new way that God is ruling in the world. Right now, he's ruling in the hearts of his people, hopefully. He's ruling in the hearts of his people. So he gets to preach that for about three months, which is pretty good. But you know what's coming next. 
because it's a pattern. But when some became stubborn, their hearts were hardened. Talking about some of the people there in the synagogues. Uh, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, you first encountered that in chapter 9 of Acts. That's the original title for our movement. We weren't called Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, Lutherans. We were called people of the way. That's our title in the book of Acts. So, um, you know, inquiring people should say, wonder what the way means. Well, probably several things. Uh, it is the way, the way among all the other ways. It is the way to God among all the other ways um, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That's why we were called the way. Now, you know, humans have never, never liked for anybody out there to speak of any exclusive truths. You know, as soon as we say we're the way, we're saying what? That's not the way over there. Humans have never reacted well to that. You know, for most of human history, we've debated what is the way. You know, we, we have different, you know, we debate, you know, which is the true way, which is the right way, which is the best way. Now, in postmodernism, of which we are surrounded in this culture, we're not debating about the true way. Now we just solved that whole argument by saying, you have your way, I have my way. And let all of our ways get along with each other. So that's, that's, that's a core description of postmodernism. You know, we don't even look for truth anymore. You just have yours, I'll have mine. Uh, so that's, that, that is a novel place to be historically, and that's why it's called postmodernism. But throughout most of human history, logic tells us if one way is right, always can't be right, unless it is in agreement with that way. You know, one plus one has to equal two universally. It cannot equal three for some people and four for some people and two for some people. So we were called the people of the way. You begin to, you begin to feel why we got persecuted. Now, people don't ever like to be told that they are perfect in their way. They don't like to be told you've got to repent and embrace another way. Anyway, this is our original title. I mean, there's part of me that kind of wishes our original title had been Methodist, but it wasn't. So we're the people of the way. This is who we are. By the way, the other title we have in the New Testament were the Nazarenes because we're following the one from Nazareth. Now, there is a church of the Nazarene, and I, thought, I always thought they have a cool title for their denomination. But that really is kind of a biblical title. Um, anyway, so... You know, the way, that, that's, that's who we were. So they became stubborn, they continued in belief, they started speaking evil of the way. That's what happens if you don't like somebody else's exclusive claims, you just start speaking evil of them. Uh, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. He had made some now for Jesus. Took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Um, he, that continues for two years. Again, he's a long time here. So that all the residents of Asia, Asia is the name for this western part of Turkey that the Roman Empire gave them. That's why we still call Turkey sort of Asia Minor as opposed to what we know as Asia Major, you know, where people like China is. But here, um, so your reasons for two years. Uh, the Hall of Tyrannus is interesting. That's probably... Uh, um, 
a place where philosophers gathered and taught. Some of you might have a translation. All of you probably, if this is not in the body of your translation, you have a little footnote beside beside the, the words there about reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus um, because there are some manuscripts in the Greek that say he reasoned in the hall of Tyrannus um, from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. And if your text doesn't say that, it may be at the bottom of the page because um, there are some manuscripts that tell, tell us explicitly when he reasoned uh, in the hall, when he taught in the hall of Tyrannus. What he's doing there, and there's, this is important, what he's doing, he's in the hall of Tyrannus, that's a popular place for philosophers to teach, philosophers to preach. In, in that culture, um, that was done in the morning. This still happens, by the way, in this part of the world. That was done in the morning because you took a siesta in the afternoon in the heat of the day. Then you'd come back later in the day and continue your work. Um, go to Rome, it's still done that way in Rome today. If you visit Rome, you need to plan to get out and about in the morning, get out and about at night. During the heat of the day, go home and sleep in the air conditioning. But so that's, so that, that's, that's why the, the hall of Tyrannus would have been in use during the morning. But when it was vacated, when people were taking their siesta, that's when Paul went and talked. The reason that's sort of significant, notice how Paul is doing whatever is necessary to reach the people. He's, he's, he's fitting their culture. He's trying to fit into their schedule. You know, one of the reasons our churches are declining, one of the reasons our churches are declining is in this age where we're really busy, one of the stupidest things we still do in the church is say something like, come and join my Sunday school and you have to be a part of my Sunday school class till Jesus returns or you die. Come and join the choir. We want you in the choir, but you gotta be in the choir till Jesus returns or you die. Um, that doesn't work in our culture anymore. People want a beginning point and an ending point. You know, whatever you're trying to do in the, that's what you've noticed over the years, while Bible studies have a start and a stop date, some of us got smarter. Yeah, I don't want to say come come study the Bible with me and you can only get out by death. You know, or if you try to get out earlier, I'm coming after you and I'm going to tell you how disappointed I am. Well, we still function like that sometimes in the church. In this culture, if you want to reach real, real living, breathing people, you've got to somehow accept everybody's busy, everybody's overscheduled. People can't join something and do it till they die. Life changes. People move. Most people don't even stay in the same city their whole life anymore. So we, we've got to get a little better at, at being able to, to reach people, but reach people in a way that they'll, they'll be willing to begin the journey with us. Yeah, in this world, at, you know, nobody's going to start a journey with you and you want them to do it for 50 years. That just doesn't happen in this culture. You, you better give them a beginning date and an ending date. Paul here, the, the Hall of Tyrannus is empty in the afternoons. It fits their schedule. They're not working. You know, I know people who think if you don't worship at 11 a.m. on Sunday morning, you're not really Christian. 8.30 doesn't work. 9.45 doesn't work. You know, and, and there's a history to why we started. You know why we started 11 a.m. worship? Yeah, I, I, that's what I figured. And the people around me, because I, I fought the worship wars. You do an 8.30 worship, people get mad because it divides the 11 o'clock crowd. You know, you, you want everybody in the same place at the same time, and it has to be 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. 
so that you can tell your friends and impress them. Where 11 a.m. came from was 100, 150 years ago, 200 years ago. When you had to get up, you had to build your fire, you had to cook your breakfast, you had to slop your hogs, you had to, you had to tie up the horses to your wagon. Yeah, they took you to 11 o'clock to get there. Now, in our culture... I hear this all the time. Well, I, in our culture, 11 a.m. is sort of in the middle of the day. What I hear more often is, is when my baby needs to go back and take a nap. You know, we've got to be able to adjust. You know, some people think 11 a.m. is sacred. Jesus started it. Now, I like 11 a.m. because I'm, you know, by that point I've preached once or twice and I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go for 11 o'clock and I'm wide awake by then. But there's nothing sacred about that time. You know, in the life of the Christian community, it is absolutely amazing what we hold as sacred. You know, I mean, I, I, I had church one time about split because the decision was made to use uh, disposable uh, plates and, and uh, forks and napkins and, and spoons for homecoming rather than the real china. And there's some people thought we had we'd done walked away from Jesus. You know, now if we had changed the date from the third Sunday of September to some other date and made them use disposable wear, they'd have known we had just walked away from Jesus. We've got to be able to adjust. We have to keep our eye on the prize. We want to win people for Jesus Christ. And sometimes that means making a little adjustment. You know, the hall will be empty from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. There'll be people taking a break in the heat of the day. So that's when I'm going to go and offer I'm going to preach and offer them Christ. So notice Paul's flexibility. You know, flexibility is a good thing. By the way, just as an aside, just as an aside, notice that it's called the Hall of Tyrannus. Now, that fascinates some of us. Tyrannus, you can tell what that word means. Tyrant. Now, I don't know who Tyrannus was. I doubt his parents named him that. Um... So what we kind of suspect, because um, I can't imagine parents naming their child tyrant, um, but what we suspect is that hall was famous for one particular teacher who was known, who was nicknamed tyrant. I've had some of those in my academic career. So it's not a stretch for the imagination to see that. Anyway, Hall of Tyrannus, Paul made use of it, made use of it at a convenient time when it would reach people, when people were able to come. Um, so one of the, another reason why churches are dying is not only is 11 a.m. on Sunday morning sacred, I know of a lot of churches, if you can't plug into them at 11 a.m. on Sunday morning, you can't plug into them. There's no other options. That's why my last four congregations, we worship also at 5.30 on Wednesday. We worship at 5 there on Wednesday. It's a 30-minute service. Because over the years, I've noticed people that, that for whatever reason, you know, whether it's good or bad, an hour is too long for them. They can't sit for an hour. Uh, I know people that work on Sunday morning. So Wednesday afternoon, 5.30. So you've got to be willing to function that way. Paul had to do it, and we certainly have to do it in our culture today. You know, I mean, I, I date back enough. When I came to the ministry, you only worshiped at 11 a.m. And I was the one who, in three of my churches, said, 
What about 8.30 and 11 a.m.? And maybe Wednesday afternoon. Wednesday afternoon's fine. Now, in my churches where I've like started at 8.30 in addition to the 11 o'clock, people think that's a good idea to, they wake up and they realize some of those that are 11 are going to do what? They're going to go to 8.30. And, you know, and there's going to be some empty seats all of a sudden at 11 o'clock. And, you know, we love crowded rooms because we know each other. We love each other. But the visitor who's coming in that doesn't know any of us and they have to, they have to sit in such a way that you're invading their space is not very welcoming. Um, that's why anytime, we love full sanctuaries, but in a sanctuary or worship space that's two-thirds full, it's too full. You've got to have space for people to come in who don't want their space invaded. I've been in churches where there was so many people in the room. If a family came in, they had to split up. That's not hospitable. That's not being willing to do whatever to reach people for Jesus Christ. Anyway, so I'm, I'm just making you notice, helping you notice Paul's flexibility here. And you've heard me say it before, because I always, I always say this with groups that I take overseas. Flexibility is good. Now, I know that some of you haven't been flexible since the Nixon administration. <laughs> but let's work on that before I take you to Israel. Um, flexibility is a good thing. Uh, anyway, Paul's doing it here. Paul's doing it here. So let's wrap up with this. Um, so he, he's in Ephesus. You feel, you, you see what's going on. You see how he's functioning. <clears throat> now you're going to see a power encounter. You're going to see Paul's power encounter the power of the occult, the power of the demonic, the power of the magic, black magic, dark magic. So watch this. And God was doing, and here's an, an amazing phrase, God was doing extraordinary miracles. Don't know what your translation says, but there should be some sort of adjective in front of the word miracles. So, you know, inquiring persons should look at that and say, extraordinary miracles. Well, what's an ordinary miracle? You know, miracles in general seem extraordinary. Um, so what is Paul talking about here? What is the New Testament talking about here? Well, let's watch for a minute. And, Paul, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Um, obviously, extraordinary miracles are not are miracles we shouldn't expect on a regular basis. There's some miracles we can expect on a regular basis. There's some miracles we should not expect on a regular basis. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons. Those are probably sweat rags and aprons that Paul used when he was making tents. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Those are extraordinary miracles. You should at least sense and read that in such a way that when some American televangelist wants to send you a napkin that they've prayed over, of course, for a donation. You, you should at least question, well, maybe that guy doesn't get to participate in those extraordinary miracles that Paul got to participate in. There have been three periods in Bible history when there were extraordinary miracles. Three periods. Just, I'll tell you what they are. Just think a minute. Hmm, what three periods in Bible history? Have there been extraordinary miracles? Sinai, the giving of the law. 
and that wilderness wandering, the establishment of the people of Israel, the ministry of Elijah, Elijah and Elisha. That was another period of extraordinary miracles. The land was filled with paganism and the period around Jesus Christ and establishment of the church. Um, there were extraordinary miracles going on there. God can still do extraordinary miracles. You just need to, ex you just need to, you need to govern your expectations. There are ordinary miracles, extraordinary miracles. The, the most ordinary, the most common ordinary miracle is when someone becomes a new creature in Christ. When someone is born anew, when someone receives the gift of the Spirit, when someone is engrafted into the body of Christ, that is a miracle. That is a miracle that goes against everything we are, goes against our sinful nature. That is a miracle. And that is the great, I don't know what miracles you may be wanting or hoping for right now. That is the greatest miracle that happens in our world today. Now, God can do whatever. You know, God can, you know, God can save me time, the time that I spend going to, you know, service station or sheets and getting gas by just miraculously filling my gas tank. That would be an extraordinary miracle. And if I expect that, just write stupid over my forehead. <laughs> Um, that's an extraordinary miracle. You know, you know, sometimes we should always pray to God, but, you know, sometimes if I'm running late and I'm, like, pulling into the parking, space, parking lot and I'm praying for God to give me a parking space close to the door, I sense the Spirit saying to me, not I'm going to give you a parking space, I sense the Spirit saying to me, you should have started sooner. <laughs> you know, so expectations are important. Expectations are important. So um, just because God does extraordinary miracles sometimes, temper your expectations. Because there are extraordinary miracles, ordinary miracles. And I, for some reason, I, Christians never think about that. Um, Luke, the author of Acts, thought about that. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even the handkerchiefs that touched his skin, they, 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 they healed people and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. The New Testament always, always, always differentiates between healing of sickness and the exorcism of demons. The New Testament does not... You can't read the text, of the, you can say it, but you can't read the text of the New Testament and say, well, those demonic possessions were just illnesses or diseases. The New Testament always differentiates the two. They, they, they were not idiots in a prior culture. They knew what sickness was, and they knew what demon possession was, and they were not the same thing. So right here you see, you see it, and you're going to continue to see it. It's all over the New Testament. So there's diseases healed and evil spirits cast out. Those are two different things. They knew those were two different things. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. Uh, I think I remember the old King James says vagabond Jewish exorcist. Uh, there were some itinerant Jewish exorcists. By the way, you've already encountered two itinerant Jewish exorcists in the book of Acts. Remember um, uh, Simon Magus uh, back in chapter 3. Remi remember uh, Bar-Jesus back in chapter 8. These were itinerant, wonder-working exorcists from the Jewish tradition. So the ancient world knew these well. So here, Paul encounters some itinerant Jewish exorcists and notice, here's the power encounter. Who undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus 
So they were using the name of the Lord Jesus. They were invoking the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. They didn't have the right to use the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus did not grant any authority to people who do not receive, accept Jesus. These were Jewish exorcists using the name of Jesus in sort of a magical way. Yeah, but they'd use the name of any God they could find that would help them do what they wanted to do. So here they're using the name of Jesus. They don't know Jesus. They shouldn't be using his name. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. They shouldn't be taking the Lord's name in vain. They shouldn't be using the name of Jesus to accomplish what they want, and they don't know Jesus. So you begin to think this is not going to end well. It's not going to end well for them. Seven sons, verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva was doing this. We have no record of a Jewish high priest named Sceva. Um, he might be a false priest. He might be somebody claiming to be a high priest from Jerusalem. We're in Ephesus. We're a long way off. Anyway, this high priest, person claiming to be a high priest, has seven sons, and they're doing this. They're running around using the name of Jesus, trying to do extraordinary and ordinary miracles. They don't get the right to do that. They don't know Jesus. So you know it's not going to end well for them. And, and notice how it doesn't end well for them. Verse 15. And by the way, you just saw extraordinary miracles being performed by Paul. Contrast that. Look at verse 15. But the evil spirit answered them. And again, you shouldn't play with this stuff. These seven sons of Sceva are going to learn the lesson. But, he, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Um, so the, the demons even acknowledge Jesus has some authority over us. Paul has some authority over us, over us in the name of Jesus. But who are you? Um, so the, the demon that you're trying to cast out uh, um, using the name of Jesus when they don't know Jesus, um, the demon um, is, is being sarcastic to them. And it's going to get worse. Verse 16, and the, man in, in, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I mean, that's better than the movie Exorcist right there. You probably never even noticed this text. Don't play with the occult. Don't toy or trifle or take Jesus' name in vain. You know, you have special authority if you belong to Jesus. If you know Jesus, he has vested you with special authority. If you don't know Jesus, don't try to use Jesus for your purposes. Anyway, it didn't end well for them. So let's wrap up. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. Why, well, I'm sure it did. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus because God allows extraordinary miracles to validate the preaching of his word. He doesn't do it to titillate and to entertain. He does it to validate the preaching of his word. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear, solemn reverence, fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Yeah, you better be careful how you use the name of Jesus. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. There has to be a clean break. You can't come to Christ and um, purposefully willingly, knowingly drag your old pagan ways with you into your new relationship with Christ. You have to walk away from evil. 
There has to be a clean break. So many of these um, new believers who were confessing, divulging their practices, a number of those who had practiced, ma- practiced magic arts, again, this is Ephesus, uh, are brought, and a number of those who had, held, who had practiced magic arts brought their books, now, again, these are really scrolls, but we call them books. They, they, books haven't been invented yet. The, the Christian community invented books, by the way. That was a way for us to carry our literature all around the world. That was much more um, portable than a scroll. But at this point, there's these scrolls. So a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. I'm not a big fan of book burnings, but all book burnings are not created equal. All book burnings are not bad just because you got books that are burning. Um, you need to be reflective enough to evaluate the differences between different book burnings. I'm saying that because if you look at social media, people use book burning as an image to attack anybody with whom they disagree. Because they say, we're all going to start burning books. Well, some books need to be burned. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned, burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. I won't have to do the details, but that's probably about $6 million in today's money. Some people really spend a lot of effort trying to figure that kind of thing out. So the, notice how Luke now summarizes here in Acts. So the word, the word, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Yeah, for lots of reasons. It was pretty good preaching, but you have these signs and wonders, extraordinary miracles that are conforming the pre- con- con- confirming the preaching of the Word. So, um, yeah, it, it stays interesting as long as we're in Ephesus. Let's, let's pray together.